this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. So my next guest, James Murphy, actually came up with the cure for baldness. No, I'm serious. He actually came up with a cure, in particular for female hair regrowth, called Viviscal, a brand that he built to 50 million euros before he sold it for a cool 150 million euros or about 15 times EBITDA. Lots of good stuff in James's interview. Listen for how he protected the formula he created, how he actually acquired it and then chose to protect that formula over time. Listen to his thinking around the difference between distribution company and how the lower valuations they enjoy compared with a brand and why it was so important for him to create the Viviscal brand. Also listen to his continuity program. At the time of the acquisition, 30% of his revenue was coming from recurring sources. Lots of really interesting data points from this interview with James Murphy. James Murphy, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hi, John. Glad to be on the show. Yeah, for sure. So tell me a little about, about this company, Life's Too Good. What do you guys do? Well, originally we started off as a distribution company in Ireland, and it was made mostly based on my previous experience going out, taking brands and building them and whatever. But ideally, the idea was to try and take really proven products from around the world and introduce them, mostly health and beauty products, into the Irish market through direct response, direct to consumer, pharmacies, online and whatever. And then um, it kind of grew. We were in lots of things from pain products to beauty products, creams, cosmetics, all sorts of stuff. And then in 2002, it became clear that in order to get the brands or further get decent brands, I had to be able to offer the UK and Ireland. So bought a business in the UK, which brought me into the whole supplement um, industry, healthcare supplements, and uh, bought that business in 2002. And that brought me into skincare supplements, food supplements for skincare and hair care. And uh, from there, it just we tended to focus mostly on that end of the business. And, and at some point, you got involved in the hair restoration sort of uh, I'm not sure the exact category. You came up with the cure for baldness, as I understand it. Is that true? That is not too far away from the truth. But actually, what happened was when I bought that distribution business in the UK, they had um, I was trying to bring in a, a pain product that I found out at Connecticut that I wanted to launch into the UK. 
So they had a nice database. They had some very good distribution into retail, into pharmacy and, and drugstore and whatever. But what was interesting was that they had a database of 5,000 people who were buying a, a supplement, a hair growth, hair loss supplement, which was targeted at men in a black box. And I really didn't think that it probably worked or it was up to much or whatever. Else. However, what intrigued me was that half the database was female which I thought was interesting because I thought they were buying it for their counterparts or their partners or husbands or whatever. So when I did a bit more research, I realized um, that they were actually buying that product for themselves. So when I looked into it even further and I did a bit more research, I realized, oh my God, actually women do suffer from hair loss. And when I looked into it and researched it further, I found that hair loss in women and men is completely different. In men, it's what they call permanent hair loss or male pattern baldness. On the female side, it was more temporary. Got to do with hormonal issues, got to do with products that they use or put on their hair, but also, and more importantly, stress. And I realized that a lot of these things were kind of man-made or woman-made or whatever you want to call it. And so I realized, oh, this needs to be changed. So I decided to change everything move away from men and target the whole business towards the female side. And with everything else at that time, I, I used celebrities uh, to endorse the product and to help me on the PR side. And so we got a very good celebrity in the UK who used the product for four months, got the results, and then it just all took off from there. Who, who has endorsed the product? Would, would I know of any of the, the women that have endorsed it? You certainly wouldn't know the ones in the UK, but the ones in the US, you definitely know. So Jennifer Aniston, Gwyneth Paltrow, and then a host of other um, models and, uh, you know, talk show hosts um, have used it over the years. I mean, in the end, we had probably, I, I think at the end of the day, we probably ended up with maybe 12 or 13 out of the top hairstylists actually recommending the product. And the beauty was that they were obviously using the product with all of their celebrity here, their celebrities who used the product and who they recommended to, and it just kind of exploded from there. So the product's name is Viviscal, is that right? That's correct. Okay. So does it, I have to ask, does it actually work? Well, when we bought that business in the UK, we became a distributor for that product in the UK. And they had two clinical trials that were done on men, mostly in Scandinavia. And I mean, I won't go into all the details, but a big opportunity came up for us in 2007 for us to actually buy the original product, which was the Viviscal brand. So we literally went up to Finland in, in 2007, 2006, and the business was quite small. It was probably just short of a million dollars. And, uh, but it had nice distribution in a couple of countries worldwide, including half a million turnover in the US, mostly focused on direct-to-consumers, some pharmacies, and um, also into hair transplant clinics and that kind of stuff. But um, So it was very, very small when we bought the business. Um, but what was really interesting was for the first time in our business, we were moving away from being just a distributor of somebody else's brand to actually owning our own brand. And that was a major move for the company in terms of its history. But I guess what I'm curious to know is like, how did you get comfortable with the efficacy of the product? Like, 
it's a million dollar company. It's small. I mean, everybody, you know, it's almost a cliche. It is, in fact, it is a cliche to say, I'm going to come up with the cure for baldness. It's a cliche. So how did you see this finished company and and actually get comfortable with the fact that the product actually delivered the results that it claimed it could? It, like, was it, was it clinical trials? Did you did you try it yourself? Like, what was the way you, how did you know it worked and so, it was worth paying for? All of that. Absolutely all of that. So go back to 2002. What we bought that time was the distribution of Vibisca. And up to then, it had been targeted at men. It probably didn't work as well for men. And so therefore, it wasn't really going anywhere. It was quite a nice business. It was probably short of, somewhere again, short of a million dollars in terms of turnover in the UK at the time. However, when I switched it over and started to focus in on the female side, First thing I did is I come from a family of nine, four sisters, had all four sisters test the product. All four sisters come back and said, wow, this is amazing. Not only have I noticed my hair getting thicker, but their nails. And that was probably the deciding factor for me because the keratin that's in your nails and in your hair is exactly the same. So if their nails started to grow pretty swiftly, then it had to be having the same effect in their hair. The other thing I noticed was obviously, you know, I had to understand all about the hair loss and the, the hair follicle and the actual process of how hair grows and whatever. And by getting into that, it became kind of clear why it was working. So we moved on from there. And when we started in the US in 2006, 2007, we knew that in the US, it was going to be absolutely crucial that we were going to have to do some clinical research. So between 2007 and when we eventually sold the business in 2017, we ended up with 12 clinical trials. And, so, and these clinical trials were all pharma-grade trials, you know, um, placebo-controlled, randomized, um, sizable clinical trials that were done in um, Brazil, they were done in Europe, they were done in the US. And in, on top of that, we did a hell of a lot of consumer research because I suppose when we sold the business, we had a database of almost 300,000 people. So in that database, we were always doing loads and loads of consumer research to confirm that the product was working. And we did lots of other kind of marketing things like we created uh, a thing called The Voice, where we created a form and it was kind of like a Facebook form and where we allowed a group of women to come together and talk about hair loss. Um, and obviously, we, you know, we had one or two people in the company who had access to it, but not anybody else. And everybody was allowed to share their stories. So we knew that people were getting excellent results. In addition to that, we expanded the business into the profession side. So we went after dermatologists, hair transplant clinics, um, plastics, right across the board. And we found that these guys only recommended stuff like minoxidil or Rogaine, Regain on the basis that that was the only thing that they had clinical research or clinical evidence to prove efficacy. But when we started to go into it, we started producing white papers. We brought some serious experts on board. And when we produced the papers, we then went to hair congresses, hair growth congresses, hair loss congresses, and we presented our findings um, throughout the period that we were doing this. And then they began to believe, they began to review the papers and slowly but surely they began to realize that, you know, even though this was not a pharma product, it was a natural food, 
it was they understood it to be a functional food with enough clinical science to prove its efficacy. How were you able, or were you able to protect? I mean, you'd come up with in in North America. We have this thing called caramel chocolate bars. I don't know if they had the same thing in Ireland, but you know, it's the caramel secret. You'd come up with the you know this this killer formula. Um, you you purchased the business. How did you protect it? Like, was it possible that other people could basically create a competing product, or were you able to protect the formula in some way? You mean the secret sauce in the Coke that makes the Coca Cola? Yeah, exactly. Well, yes, absolutely. So there was no patent um, or anything like that, which, you know, to be honest with you, I've never been a great believer in the whole patent thing because you spend more money trying to defend the damn things. So for me, what was really interesting about Viviscal was exactly that, the secret sauce. And so when we looked into it, we were always intrigued. As a distributor, we never knew because it was just supply and we tried to figure out what it was. But when we eventually bought the business out of Finland, we got access to the secret sauce. And what was really interesting was the way in which the marine protein was extracted and there were other ingredients put in and taken out and whatever else. And we knew that not only with that could, could we move forward in terms of having a secret sauce, but we did one, one other thing which was really interesting. We went to um, a third level institute in Ireland and we asked them to take and analyze the ingredients right down to the amino, the amino, uh, the amino acids, right down to peptide level. And we created what they call a marker. And that marker identified exactly what peptides or what amino acids were in there. So if ever somebody came up and tried to say, look, you know, we have a marine protein extract just like Viviscal, um, we could take their product and we could break it down and prove that it wasn't the same. And so therefore they could make no reference. And in fact, we did the very boldest thing. One of the big three drugstore groups in the US did exactly that. They copied the product and they put up a product on shelf, which was uh, uh, their own product. I won't mention their name, but they did put the product on the shelf and then they said, compare to Viviscal. So we took the product and what we ended up doing was we reported them to an organization called the National Advertising Division. Now that you can imagine, they were a bit peeved when they realized that we did that. We said, look guys, we told you you can't do this because whatever you think you have in that product is not the same. We have a secret sauce. And so we went back to our, our institute in Ireland and we said, guys, take this product, and prove to us, which we know, that this is not the same, which they did. We gave the results back to the NAD, and the NAD told them to take off any reference to Viviscal because it was a completely different product. And did they take the product off the shelf completely or just, just remove the reference or the comparison to Viviscal? Every product that, had, that was on shelf with a reference to Viviscal had to be taken off shelf. They then decided to come back out with some other product with no reference to Viviscal. Do you have a sense of it at its peak? I understand you, you built Viviscal up to a 50 million turnover brand. Do you have a sense of at its peak what proportion of the hair growth, female hair growth uh, market you captured? It, that was always a very difficult thing to, to estimate, John, because... You know, when we came to the U.S. first, there was no hair loss category. There was kind of like hair care. So hair care was shampoos and lotions and conditioners and all sorts of stuff. 
when we finished, you know, they're, they're right now you see their hair loss categories and in most of the drug stores, you find it in um, Ulta stores and whatever else. But at the time, it was very difficult. But when we were preparing the product for sale, what we did is we made our best estimate. I mean, so if you were to take just the hair loss supplement industry, we were definitely somewhere north of about 65, 70%. If you took the hair loss category in total, including people who claim to have either supplement or shampoo or whatever else, we probably were somewhere around the 25%. But, you know, and then if you were in the whole hair care, the fact, the most important thing was that in drug, we were the number one selling hair loss brand. Fantastic. So take me back to 2013. I understand the business was turning over, Viviscal, the brand, was turning up about 9 million euros at the time. You were in California. You made a, a critical decision at that point that would really change the course of the business, I understand. So in Ireland, you know, with, with what we call Irish indigenous businesses, these are kind of homegrown businesses. So when we bought the business in Finland, one of the first things we did was we brought the contract manufacturing back to Ireland. So we would have more control over not just the manufacturing, but also the product development, understanding the product, the ingredients, et cetera, et cetera, and indeed the efficacy in terms of trials and whatever. So we, we added in a few experts who helped us along the way. But within, I, we also have this amazing organization, which is a state-financed um, organization called Enterprise Ireland. And they picked out, I was lucky enough to be picked out as one of 30 entrepreneurs. And we were sent over to, they created this course called Leadership for Growth. And they brought the 30 of us over in all sorts of different businesses and whatever else and different stages over to Stanford University. And they created this course. And so we spent three weeks out of the year on campus. But the objective of the exercise was to review every aspect of the business, including management, objectives, your manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, right down to the last T. But the objective at the end of the year was to come up with a five-year business plan. And so while I was there, and we also worked in groups of five or six or whatever else, while I was there, I realized, you know, my dilemma was, at the time, was Life to Good a distribution company or was it a brand owner? And so I sat down with lots of the different professors over there and we argued it out and whatever else. In the end of it all, I said, look, who cares? Let's just set a business, set a, set a plan, set ourselves a course for a, the objective to actually deliver 50 million turnover. And so when I did that and I was clear in my mind, the first thing I did was do the plan, presented it to my management team. And we, we had, at that time, we had an office in the US, UK, we had an office in, in France, and we were starting off in South America and also in Australia. So I brought everybody together and said, right guys, this is what I want. I want to build this business to 50 million. But more importantly, I want to build Viviscal to be the number one product in any market that it's in for hair loss. And the idea was to build up all the clinical trials, to build up all the efficacy, to put together the experts, to build up the channel. So instead of just B2C, direct to consumer, also pharmacies, any specific hair care stores. And in addition to that, the professional, the professional was out into uh, dermatologists, hair transplant clinics, um, also top end hair salons. 
So, and the other thing was, you know, I, I came across one kind of reluctance from some of the professional guys. They were saying, well, if you're selling this brand in retail, you know, in drugstores and whatever else, we don't want to be promoting that and then it's going to be cheaper at a drugstore, but we're selling it in our clinics and whatever else. I said, no problem. Look, you know what I'll do is I will have one product which is directed towards consumer and drug, and then I'll give you another product called Viviscal Professional. Slightly more expensive because it has better ingredients. And we also did specific efficacy, specific trials for that product so that nobody could argue that the professional product was less efficacious than the one that was in retail. So whatever angle we needed to do, we absolutely did it with a view to of gaining that objective or achieving that objective of the 50 million. And everybody was, was absolutely driven and incentivized to get that target. James, why was 50 million euros important to you personally? Because I knew I could do it. I knew that, you know, if I could get the business to 9 million, I also know that when I had the distribution of this product in the UK, it had a small turnover of maybe six or seven hundred thousand dollars. We built that brand, which wasn't our brand, we built that brand through the whole female channel into a 20 million pound retail turnover. So we figured, well, if we could do that in the UK, we could easily get this business to 50 million. And so in 2016, when I knew that we were on course to deliver 50 million for the calendar year 2016, I set the promotion in process to go and find the, an inquiry company. What, what triggered your desire to want to sell Viviscal? What was, why, why sell? Well, I, first and foremost, you know, the business, I set up the business from scratch, but I brought in some key people um, who I promised that I would give them shares, which I did. And as they achieved certain targets, their shareholding grew. But one or two of those people had been involved in other organizations where in a similar situation, CEO, major shareholder, founder, blah, 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 you know, made the same sort of promises. And I just felt, no, look, I made a promise and I'm going to do it. Did I need to sell? Well, it would be nice to go through the whole process. Having done it, I'm delighted that I'm out the other end because, you know, some people just get married to brands or businesses, which I don't agree with. I think the, the, the whole objective in business is to build something and then come out the other end by selling it on. And because the whole selling process and coming out the other end is such an experience that if you build businesses and you don't do it, you've kind of missed probably 50% of the whole experience, which is amazing. Love it. So let's talk about that experience now. So you just, so you you built Viviscal from nine million to fifty million in revenue. Um, you decided to sell. Take me through the process. Like, what's the next step? Do you do you do you hire an investment banker to take it to market? Do you do it yourself? What, what did you do next? So remember, we're in the west of Ireland, where we protect the continent of Europe from rain. So that means we get a lot of it. So we have plenty of time to be inside and think about things. So in 2016, as I say, we um, so I kind of we were kind of hemming and hawing about selling the business lights too good or selling 
something else. So I sat down with some merchant bankers in London and, you know, after that first meeting and everything else, I said, no, you know what, you know, if I sell this business, I'm going to be selling it at the age of 55, 56. I thought, you know, I'm going to have plenty of energy and everything else. I need to just keep going. So why don't I just sell the brand? And I also thought, you know what, that's going to be so much cleaner because, you know, if somebody's coming in, they may not want to buy some of the other brands because they're not in hair, hair loss. Like we had some other products in cardiovascular and skin and whatever else, and we just thought, no, maybe they're not interested in that. So I thought that was the perfect solution. That was the first thing. The same thing was that when I was with that merchant bank in London, you know, they were helping us out. They, you know, they were going to charge us 4 or 5% and all this kind of stuff. And it became clear over a couple of months that these guys were very UK-focused. And so I had to stop and think and say, well, maybe we're going to rethink this because this is a UK merchant bank in a country in which I only sell maybe 20-22% of my turnover. 75% of our turnover at that stage was coming from the US. So as luck would have it, we got a letter from another merchant bank type organization out of Paris who had an office in New York and Paris. So I thought, okay, I had a call with them on the phone, jumped on a plane, went over and sat down and saw, wow, these guys have a serious operation. They really know, not only do they know what they're doing, but they have contacts with the kind of companies in the US that I would imagine would be very interested in this brand as opposed to the guys in the UK who probably would find me a buyer in the UK but would not give me the same value. I also knew that the multiples um, that people were buying or paying for brands like this in the US were, you know, as long as your EBITDA was reasonable, they would pay you multiples of turnover, which was also very interesting. So what did you think the company... James, what did you think the company was worth in terms of a multiple of your turnover before you entered into the process? What did you think you could get for the business in the United States? Well, the guys, the Merchant Bank in London told me that we, you know, we, we should be able to get somewhere close to 100 million. So I thought, well, you know, if I got 110, maybe, I don't know, north of 110, that I would be very happy. But personally, I thought, you know what, maybe it's worth more, who knows? We will never know until we go through the process. And the process started with us working with the guys in Paris and New York to actually come up with an information memorandum. And that information memorandum was kind of like a teaser. And that, so what they did is we put together a really professional document. And they took that document and they sent it out to lots of companies, CPG companies in the U.S. Um, So we decided to Consumer packaged goods companies, yeah. Exactly. So we decided to focus on U.S., U.K., some companies in Europe. And also we decided to throw a couple of Chinese companies into the hat. So we just... so they, 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 once we put it together, they took all of the top line information and sent it out. And then slowly but surely, companies started to come back. So in the beginning of 2016, we started to get some really interesting uh, companies coming back from all over the place. And what happened was they pulled them all together and said, okay, guys, before we go to the next level, you're going to have to put a bid on the table. So some of the big guys that were in there, so the bid started off initially around 103 and it started going up from there. 
So, you know, it, it got, went from 103 up to, uh, what was it, 115 or something like that. Or, and, you know, when, when, it, when somebody came in, now remember, it was all subject to due diligence. So, you know, while we were getting excited that we were north of 110, um, we knew that, okay, that's all based on these guys sitting down and grilling everything and opening the data room and whatever else. But it was, it was it's such an exciting phase because we knew then that the business more than likely, if, and we knew we were able to deliver on the due diligence, we knew that we should be able to get the business to a value north of 115, 120. Got it. So let me come back to that in a second. Just before we go there, on your fifty million in revenue, what was your EBITDA margin on that? So the EBITDA at that time was um, about twenty percent. Twenty percent. So you're probably you're netting around ten million on the fifty. Yeah. Um, got it. Okay. So you're thinking it's probably worth ten times EBITDA or about two times revenue is what you're thinking in your mind, but you're not sure if there's more on the you're leaving money on the table if you were to sell for that. Yes. Got it. Okay. As you the next question I've got as it relates to you're in these discussions, you know due diligence is coming. Um how do you avoid sharing too much in the diligence phase? such that one of the bidders could basically go and and compete with you based on the information they glean from the the uh, the diligence process well first of all the information memorandum is very tough information so you're not really giving away too much okay you're giving away you know they, they some, let's say one of the bigger competitors could take the information and they could kind of work out your market share but remember it was still it's, it was still a very much a, 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 it was an unknown category. So it was a growing category. Nobody had a lot of information. There wasn't a lot of IRI data, Nielsen data anywhere. So, you know, we knew that, okay, they might be able to figure it out or make some sort of an estimate, but it wasn't 100%. Um, Were they asking you for details on the formula, on the marine protein that you developed? I mean, were they... Were they getting nitty gritty into the science no. behind the actual technology? No, 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 no. So just so remember, at that stage, we were at the information memorandum. So just top line information. They had to take it on face value. They had to um, believe that those numbers and everything else was correct, right? So that was the first thing. And then they put in this bit. Then you go to phase two, and phase two is where you accept them in. And when I say accept them in, you know, if we saw a company there that we felt, well, we didn't really want them to be in the process, we could say no. Now, we didn't, as it turned out. But the next phase was where we had to go and sit down. So we ended up with two separate weeks out of New York where we had presentations um, based on a new presentation, which was far more information which we gave to them, from which they would then start to really dig into the process. So in June of 2016, we sat down in boardroom in just across, in fact, very close to the Apple building or the Apple um, store in, beside uh, Central Park in New York. In Manhattan, yeah. In Manhattan. And we literally had, over the course of the two weeks, we had about 10 or 12 companies with about 20, 25 people in a room, absolutely grill 
I mean, it was the most exhilarating experience, probably the best thing that ever I ever did. It was the most amazing thing. When you have 20 people just literally coming at you with questions from everywhere and anywhere. And so it was our US CEO, myself as the group CEO, our CFO for the group, and then the marketing, CMO marketing. So four of us were there and we literally took every and any question we could take over the course. So they literally grilled us for about five or six hours. And that then was the start of the whole process where they were entitled to come in to the data room. Now, obviously having signed all the NDAs and all that stuff, but from there on in, it was open book, open the kimono, as they say. And, and again, at this stage, now that you've got the NDAs in place and you've, you're in the management, you know, phase two, the management team, is anybody asking you direct specific questions about the formula itself? What's the protein, you know, how defendable is the, is the, you know, how is the formula itself? Are, are they getting into that area of questioning? Even though you open the kimono, John, you're still wearing an underpants. So there's no way you're ever going to give them too much. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Jesus, that this is a family show, James. Keep it clean. Absolutely. Listen, that's everybody knows what an underpants is. It's safe. We're, we're on safe ground here. So listen, what no, of course nobody was ever gonna get the, the, the formula. Um literally they could take the box and they could ask us about what was in the box, but I would say, listen, it's marine protein, it's protected. When you buy the business, you get access to the formula. Love it. Okay. So you've got 10 companies. They're grilling you in these, in these marathon sessions in Manhattan. Uh, of the 10 or 12 companies, how many firm offers did you get? How many letters of intent or LOIs did you get? Well, we had, we had letters of intent offers, initial offers from all 10 to all 12. And then what about after the management t- team? Did, did, anyone, did, did, you, did anyone drop out of the process at that point? Well, we, we kind of pushed away a few of them. There were a couple of um, VC companies who wanted to come in and, you know, anybody that really wanted to come in and wanted us to stay on and the earn out and all that kind of stuff, we just weren't interested in that. And, um, you know, I agreed with my senior management team that, you know, we might be around for, or the guys might be around for 12 months or maybe maximum two years tops for the guys in the U.S., but people just didn't want to get drawn into that. And I knew I had pushed them for as long as I could to get the business up to the 50 million. So I might have been pushing it a bit more if I wanted, plus I might have had to give more away or whatever. So we were more interested in companies that were CPG, consumer goods companies that literally had a big operation who were used to voting on brands like this. So they were more interesting. And as it turned out, they were the ones that kind of competed at the end. Got it. And tell me about that competition. What was the range in offers between the lowest and the highest? Um, the range in offer was about 25%. Got it. And were, was your investment banker kind of playing one off the other, trying to get to the maximum price? Like, How, did, how much back and forth was there to, to, to actually come up with a winning bid? Well, what happened was it ended up with two, you know, one other very big company that was involved. And they, um, I mean, they were kind of neck and neck for a bit. Um, but then we kind of pushed it a bit harder. And I mean, C&D had got, I, you know, 
let's say I, the Merchant Bank had got it to what they thought was really good. I mean, you know, and I thought, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Because they were going to get their percentage. So, you know, it got to a point where I took over the negotiations myself. And so we went over to Paris. They came over with what the maximum amount they could offer. And I said, look, I need more. You need to go back to the board and get some more. So that's what I did. And I kept pushing it because I knew from the whole process that we had gone through and the reaction of all these people that they were seriously impressed. And a lot of them, you know, when we had coffee or lunch or whatever afterwards, you know, they were seriously impressed with the amount of effort and detail that we had put in an investment that we put into the brand. And that was things like, you know, 12 clinical trials as opposed to maybe two or three for most products in similar categories. Um, the global impact, the fact that we had our own operation set up in Canada, US, Brazil, um, Ireland, UK, Australia, all English speaking. The marketing strategy was very similar in all the countries, so it could easily move from one to the other. We had an infomercial, the only infomercial that was successful, selling a supplement where you were literally promising hair loss in three months. I mean, you know, no infomercial promises anything that doesn't produce results in like five minutes. And we were promising three months. That's how good it was. But we had also set up what we call the, the journey, the Viviscal journey, where basically anybody that came in, you know, we pushed as hard as possible to get them into the three months because we knew that they wouldn't see results in anything less than the three months. So we offer them really serious incentives to bring them in. And once we had them in, you know, we didn't just keep flogging them product. What we did was we kept reinforcing their belief in the product by showing them more information, a new trial, a new celebrity, a new endorsement, new research, new consumer research, anything that was a good information that would be useful to somebody that's trying to grow out their hair or to reverse hair loss. So they became, they, they, they trusted us as a brand and as a company to such an extent that it was so much easier to get the repeat purchase. We also had a continuity program in place whereby, you know, we signed them up and we ended up with, let's say, nearly 30% of people staying on the product for over a year, which was serious in terms of how easy it was for us to get them to convince them to continue to take the product. So, so the continuity of, program was a subscription offering of some sort where they would, would, would auto ship? Exactly. So we so when we signed them up for the infomercial, we signed them up for three months and then they would automatically get another three months unless they cancelled. And, you know, rather than just not telling them, we knew that if we reminded them that there was, you know, they were going to be signed up for another three months, again, it was the whole honesty. You know, too many companies are out there afraid, you know, they just want to hit them with the credit card and whatever else. You know, the more honest you are with your consumer, with your consumer, the more they are willing to share, the more willing to continue with the program. They wanted to work as much as you want to sell. So the more honest you are, the more you will sell. And so we put plans and programs in place that work very closely with our customers in terms of communication. And if also we had call centers in the US and Europe or whatever else, and if we had a consumer, and believe me, there are in every product, you'll have products, you know, consumers where the product just doesn't work or there's some other excuse. We empower them to refund. There was no right. question that. 
So, so, so to go back to the deal itself, you, you had two offers. It had come down to two competing parties. What was the offer on the table at the, the time that you said wasn't good enough? Uh, let's say it was about 15% below what we finally got. Got it. So my understanding is you got 150 million euros for the business in the end. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just doing the quick math. So we're, so we're roughly around... Let me help you, John. I'd say, in fact, what happened was we lost one of the or the, the second bidders. Um, we lost them at about 130, and then we pushed on until we got what we felt was the true value of the business. James, I gotta ask: 130 million euros is a lot of money. <laughs> you know, like why push? Why not just say thank you very much? That sounds great. Let's move forward. Why? Why put it all at risk? For an extra 15%. Because that extra 20 million is what I have put into what I call the Life to Good Foundation for vulnerable women and children. And so I knew the more I get from companies that have it, the more I'm in control to do what I want to do with it. So I don't need to invest it in another business. I can give it away to people who need it. So you'd already started to think about what you wanted to do with the money even even before you sold. Absolutely. Interesting. Okay. So you get them. How did, I mean, <laughs> I got to ask, there's a pretty good offer on the table. Did they get a sense then when you were down to one that they were the only bidder left in the in the dance or or were you able to, to kind of continue the, the sort of idea that there were multiple bidders? You have to convince them that there are multiple bidders. There's no way. If it's down to one, you're on pretty thin ice. Yeah, yeah. And so, how did how did you ultimately get them? So I understand you made the case. What what did they sort of capitulate quickly? What, how, like how long did it take to get them to to up their offer from one thirty to one fifty? Well, it went through two two different stages, but it took um, it took about six or seven weeks. Wow, what was what was that like to get the letter of intent that you ultimately signed? I'm assuming that as part of the letter of intent, just prior to commencing due diligence, you had to sign a, a no shop clause where you gave exclusivity to C&D as, as, uh, as they went through their diligence. Is that right? Well, no. I mean, like every company that came in was entitled to go into the data room. So the merchant bank, we had literally coordinated all of that. So what they did was, you know, once we agreed to admit them into the process, they gave us a bid and they came into the process, then we opened up the data room. And then I had put together a team within my organization who literally were, so you had people in accounting, you had people in um, uh, regulations, you had people in marketing, you had the database IT, so, and then you had the various countries. And so you had teams of people. I mean, one of, one of the companies in the very late stages had almost 100 people working on it at any one time. So, you know, you can imagine there was a lot of people working on information. And we were putting up tons and tons of documents up onto the data room. I mean, it was an amazing experience, but it was extremely professional. And the more prepared you are, the more professional you are in terms of your ability to put up information when it's requested, 
the easier and more confident that the acquirer company has. So my understanding is that the, the your you know your top lieutenants, the CEO in the United States, your chief marketing officer, your CFO. I'm assuming they had some participation, some equity in Viviscal, which they were incentivized to uh, you know, buy as part of this exit. But what about the rest of the 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 team that was working on the diligence? How did you uh, incent or did you incentivize them to? Uh, to help get this deal done? Because it, clearly you had to have dozens of people on staff to help through the diligence process. So you had to see in the board, you had the senior management team, and then you had various teams in various countries. And the whole base was in Ireland supporting all the countries. So everybody benefited in some way from this. Everybody got a piece of the pie. Everybody across the whole organization, number one. Number two, some of the key people who were very much involved in, let's say, the whole, um, either the negotiation or the due diligence, or indeed, we also had a transfer service agreement. So remember, it took us probably nearly nine months, nine months plus to transfer the business afterwards. So everybody got rewarded, some rewarded more, and then obviously the top team and the key people got rewarded with, with shares. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Take me through closing day. Do you remember where you were when the, when the deal actually was closed? Maybe describe where you were and, and, and how that experience was that the day that the deal was consummated. Uh, do you want the real story? Please. So you remember it was the week in November uh, 2017 when the Cubs won the World Series. So I, I, brought, well. I brought my family over to Chicago. We had the office in Chicago. And so on the Monday, uh, Monday night, we went to the NFL game where the Hawks beat the Vikings for the first. Was it the Hawks? Yeah, they beat the Vikings. So that was our first. Chicago Bears, I think, was the. Is the no, is no, the no. The Bears, the Bears were this. So we're talking three different sports here. We're talking football. We're talking um, uh, hockey, as in I think the hockey is it's the Hawks and the hockey, and we're yeah, talking Blackhawks, yeah, and baseball. Okay, so okay. I was at the football game on the Monday night. Then the Tuesday and Wednesday was obviously the Cubs winning on the Wednesday night. Then Thursday we were we ended up watching the Hawks beat the Vikings. So in that week. There was three unbelievably big games, which was football, ice hockey, ice hockey, and baseball. And then on the Friday morning, I got the call from the merchant bankers to say that they had accepted the board of CND had accepted the bid, accepted to pay 150. Which and the problem I had was that I had the whole day mapped out. There was meetings and everything else, and I couldn't exactly go, you know, down to the lake and go jumping around and all sorts of stuff. I just decided to keep my head focused until later on that evening because Ireland was playing against New Zealand in rugby, and we had never beaten them. And so on Saturday evening, I was like a sponge because we beat New Zealand for the first time in 110 years. And the Cubs had beaten for 111 years. And then the deal came through. It was like somebody had to squeeze me like a sponge on a Sunday. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, it's an amazing story. I, 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 must, I must ask you, James, I mean, 
it's I'm sure it's been an emotional high uh, with the that week. How have you dealt with the inevitable letdown of the months uh, afterward? The, uh, uh, the, the 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 months sort of after the deal has consummated here in in 2018. How has that been emotionally for you? Honestly, I'd say the year after the sale. Well, first of all, in 2018, um, 2017. Yeah, sorry, 2017. We literally, you know, we went through the, the transition services. So we had a whole team of people, and we're kind of working on. We we had contract. They had contracted us to continue to run a number of countries and pass it over and whatever. So we were kind of very much involved, even though I was looking at lots of other businesses. But honestly, John, I'd say the last year has been probably one of the toughest years um, for me because, you know, it's great to go and build a brand from literally from scratch and make it the number one and sell it. It's an amazing story. But then you're going out to try and do it again. You're trying to go out there and find the next one. And it has been an amazingly tough slog trying to find another business that I can build into another business now, we've found two or three things and we're right down there to negotiating. I don't want to take control. I want to buy a fairly significant share. But it reminds me largely what, what it was that we achieved because literally we, nef- we left no box unticked in terms of everything that needed to be in place to get the absolute full value. And when I look back, I take pride in the fact that we did get 150 because we deserve to get 150. Because when I go now and over the last year and looking at the type of businesses that are not a million miles away, but there are all sorts of problems with them. They just don't get it. You know, if you do something, do it right, do it well. And, you know, the advice to all you guys out there who listen, you know, you've got to be professional about this. If you really want to get top dollar for your business, that means that it has to be properly financed. It has to have the best people you can afford. And as you grow and you don't have the right people, then go and get the best people. Because some of the things that held me back were not people who weren't good enough. We had a great product. We had great marketing. We pushed the boat as many times as we could. We made lots of mistakes. We went into countries and lost a lot of money. But when we went into those countries and we knew that it wasn't going to happen, we failed fast. We cut our losses and got out. But there are so many things that I find companies are going in. They don't have the clinical trials to prove efficacy. They don't have the distribution. Their margins aren't great. They're not dealing. They don't have secret sauce. I mean, it's just lots and lots of things that they have to think about. Otherwise, they're going to spend so much time later on trying to figure out what they have to change to be able to put it on the plate so it can be sold. Such great advice, James. I am so grateful for you sharing your story with us. What is what? Do you have an ask for uh, my audience? Do you, do you want them to go do something uh uh, visit a website, connect with you in some way. What, where would you like people? What would you like people to do as a result of uh, listening to this interview? Honestly, what I would love them to do: any entrepreneur that has a business in excess of maybe one or two million, they should seriously seek out a course like I did. So stand 
that. You got Kellogg Institute in Chicago. You got a ton of institutes up there on the east coast. You got um, Stanford over on the west coast. You know these things, these courses are. You can get one for two weeks. Literally, I sent my CEO in the US on a course for two weeks. It was a similar course to what I did. It was kind of leadership for growth. It was a growth type course. If you go on that. What it does is, number one, it takes you away from the office for two weeks. Number two, it puts you around, it puts you together with like-minded people who are probably in a very similar situation, who are not just American, they are international, who are in a business that they think that they live and breathe and they want to grow. So you're going to share lots of things. You're going to have access to amazing professors and people who research this kind of stuff time in, time out. But lastly, and more importantly, you're going to come away with some sort of vision that you're going to have for this wonderful business of yours. And you're going to have to come away and write up a business plan and share it with people. But the last thing I leave you with is remember, you have other stakeholders, and I keep saying this to people, one of the stakeholders that you have in your business at any time is your family, your wife and your kids. And if you think that it's all about you and your ego and going off to do it by yourself, you're missing the point. You may have a great team inside the office and people who are willing to follow your vision and work as hard as hell with you as long as they're getting reasonably paid. But don't forget your family. They are the ones that put up with you through thick and thin. And at the end of the day, they're the ones you're going to share the success with. So don't forget about them at the beginning. Which leads me to one final question, which I hadn't planned to ask, but I, I, I must. Do, do you have kids, James? I have four amazing kids and a Swedish wife. Can't ask for any more. So how have you talked to the kids about this? I mean, this story, 150 million euros, was written up in the Irish Times. Everybody and their brother, I'm sure, in Galway knows you and knows the story. How have you talked to your kids about this event, the wealth that it's created? What have you done to sort of get them, um, enable them to, to deal with it uh, appropriately? Well, first and foremost, I kind of left it until later on to, to tell them. And what I did was I sat down with them and you know, told them that this thing was about to happen and it was going to close and whatever else. But I'm lucky because it happened to them when the youngest was 21 and the eldest was 27. So they have all come through life um, experiencing all the things that any normal child would love to experience, you know, without money interfering in any way, shape or form. Um, the fact that they're half Swedish, half Irish is great. So we've been going up and down to Sweden and they've got lots of relations. They are bilingual and all sorts of stuff. So they've got great things going for them anyway. The youngest fellow who was in college in Dublin, he just wanted to know for a fact that I wouldn't put him into some expensive apartment. He wanted to share his year last year with five crazy guys in a house and do what they do in college. And I mean, that was the biggest concern he had. The others just wanted to keep a low profile. So I didn't go out of my way to do interviews or to push it in any way so that everybody knew about it. We've kept a relatively low profile. 
And I mean, it's easy to talk to you because you're over there in Canada. I don't need to worry too much about it. It's probably hardly going to make its way back here. But it's possible. Um, the last thing I did was I set up the foundation. So I made it very clear that, you know, I wasn't going to go off and, you know, use the money to buy stupid things like planes or boats or I hate all that rubbish. The foundation for me is important because life's too good as a name is about life. It's about people. It's about people who are probably less fortunate. And so, I, you know, when I'm looking at vulnerable women and children, I have all my family involved in that. And this, this is something which is completely new. The more involved they are, the more they get to meet people who are less fortunate. So, you know, it, you can be foolish and make a hell of a lot of money and you can go out and blow it. You can buy things that make it clear that you love material things in life. Or you can try and do other things that make a difference for people who are less fortunate. To me, that's what I'm all about. And that's what I want to try and do with my family and everybody else. And who knows if I... If I find another business that I can buy into, it would be great. But it's not about the money anymore. It's about doing something else. James, this was an incredible honor to meet you and spend this much time with you. Uh, thank you for doing it. John, it was a pleasure to talk to you. And I wish all you pure entrepreneurs out there the very, very best. Good luck and everything. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.